All right, guys, what are some things you can tell me about the book of James? Without looking at the notes, nobody looked down. There's a lot of commands in it. A lot of commands, okay. A lot less Jesus references and more, more of the commands. Mm-hmm. In what way? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure someone will take care of that. Okay, good points, guys. Good morning. Find a spot, find an outline. You have an outline, Marielle? Right, papers. Give me your papers. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, gals, who have them anyway. Uh, likely story. <laughs> it does happen, I know. And even dogs eat homework. It's not just a saying, it does happen. Any of your parents ever make you uh, memorize or read the book of James when you got in trouble or write the book of James when you got in trouble? Never? All right. Kirsten, did your parents ever do that? I don't know. Yeah. I think we just did it for the boys here and here and there. What? For the bad kids. Just the bad bakers. It was a very random occasional punishment, but sometimes we did that. Yeah, James is great. So the outline is in some ways simple, in some ways complicated. In some ways it's simple because you've got that opening greeting. Um, So yeah, turn to the book of James. Anybody need a Bible? Or a napkin, or a crayon, or a tissue, or some tape. No? Okay. Yeah, so James 1.1, 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So that's verse 1. And then verse 2, bam, we, we start, we race in, we move, and then you get to the very end, and there's, there's not really even a closing. He says, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Period. End of sentence. End of book. So not even a grace be with you or 
the brothers greet you or anything like that. It just ends. So in some ways the outline is very simple. You've got a greeting and then the rest of the book. And in some ways it's complicated if you try to parse out uh, the rest of the book. But very fire-packed, uh, very fiery epistle. Great epistle to memorize if you're looking for a book. And if you want to step into the world of memorizing entire books of the Bible, it's a good one because uh, it's got so much practical teaching and uh, the sections um, stand alone in a good way. So something for you guys to consider. I think it's, I don't know, is it 100 verses? Somewhere like that, somewhere around 100 verses. All right, so we call this a general epistle. And this is... This is the first general epistle we've talked about, right? Um, and the reason it's called general epistle is why? It's because it's written to a general audience. Um, so all of the Pauline epistles are written to a specific place, you know, Corinth, Rome, Thessalonica, Colossae, or a person, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. But when you get to the general epistles, uh, you know who writes them, at least in almost all, the, in almost all of them, but you don't know who they're writing to, and it, and it feels like they're writing to a broad audience, um, not a specific one. So those would include Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John, Jude, and not Revelation. I set you up for that, didn't I? Um, I guess in some ways Revelation is a general let, uh, writing because it's written to a general audience, but it's not an epistle, so it is not a general epistle. Um. What else do we want to say as introductory? Yeah. Well, let me pray and we'll continue. Father, we thank you for this book, and we thank you for how practical and helpful it's been to Christians for all these centuries, and we pray for us as well, that it would help us, that it would clarify the kind of life we are to live as Christians and help us to please you with the life we live. We, life we, live we do pray that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers, and so even as we think about James, let us not be hearers only, but let us be doers of the word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the who is kind of interesting because um, when you step into the Jameses of the Bible, you kind of get a, a sense, a little bit of the history of the Bible. There's actually four different Jameses in the Bible, and uh, you can think about each of them as possible authors, but we can rule three of them out. Uh, so two Jameses are part of the 12 apostles, right? So you might think, well, that's, those are great candidates for having written the book of James because they knew, they knew Jesus, they're with Jesus. Um, so you have James, the brother of... Well, there's that. that's true. But then you have this other apostle who's a brother of... John. Yeah, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Um, and then you have James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, Son of Alphaeus, James, the son of Alphaeus, is, is a little bit too obscure. So, you know, James doesn't clarify who he is other than saying he's a servant. Um, and the New Testament didn't feel the need to clarify it, uh, the other, uh, the rest of the New Testament church. And so the assumption is that it wouldn't be an obscure James if he doesn't need any kind of description of who he is. Um, and then you get James... Um, the son of Zebedee, who would be a great candidate, except for the fact that he died. So that makes him less of a candidate. Uh, he's, he's the first, not the first martyr, but James, uh, Acts 12.2 is when he's killed by Herod. 
Um, so the first martyr, of course, is Stephen, but in Acts 12.2, he dies. So that seems too early for this to be uh, written by James, the son of Zebedee. Um, there's a random father of Judas. So James, or Luke 6.16, Acts 1.13, but he's even more obscure, so we assume that's not the guy. So that leaves James, the brother of Jesus. So turn to Mark 6.3. Let's actually read uh, 6, 1 through 6. So we'll start with Joby and work that way on the table. Just read one verse a person. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and the disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and a brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He marveled because of their unbelief, and he went up south among the villages. Great. Um, yeah, so uh, Jesus here in Nazareth came to his hometown and teaches on the synagogue, and then they begin to, qu they begin to question who, how in the world did this guy, who we know so very well, how did this guy suddenly get all this great authority and teaching ability? Because after all, he is. And then he's described in verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And so I've asked this question before, but so we know that Jesus' family had at least how many children? Yes. Yeah, sisters is plural, so we know there's at least two sisters. There's four brothers plus Jesus, so there's at least seven in his family. So he came from a, a large family. Um, but the interesting thing is the brothers mentioned. So this is the brother of James, and actually this is the James we think wrote the epistle of James. The brother of James and Joseph and Judas. Uh, obviously not Judas Iscariot, but um, Judas, who is also Jude. So we know him by Jude as the author of the epistle of Jude. So two writers of New Testament books are there, um, James and Jude. Um, but it's just helpful to just to put place Jesus and uh, Jesus the man in, in a natural setting in his family and recognize, and, and rec it's that verse is relevant as well. Um, the resistance to Jesus that was common among those who knew him, thought they knew him best, right? They actually didn't know him best, but they thought they did. Um, yeah, so that's the James we think wrote the book of uh, James. And then we meet him later, turn to Acts 15. 
So remember James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, he died in chapter 12. So then there's this other James that appears in uh, chapter 15. And we'll pick it up at... Where do we want to pick it up? Well, let me just go, go to verse 1 so we get some context. Jerusalem Council, kind of a big event in the early church. Um, this is, so the, uh, the preaching of Paul and Barnabas preached a strong salvation by grace through faith and not works. You do not have to become a, a Jew to become saved, which had basically had been true since, uh, since the time of Abraham. You had to be circumcised and, and practice the life of a Jew if you wanted to be part of God's people. But now there's this new gospel of Jesus where you can, by faith, enter into the people of God and not, not through all these Jewish practices, particular Jewish practices. And so that caused some, caused some great commotion. So in 15.1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers in Antioch. Uh, so they came down from Judea, near, which is effectively near Jerusalem, they're teaching the brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Not even, it's not even a matter of obedience, it's a matter of salvation. They say you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. And so Paul and Barnabas rejected that totally. That was completely wrong. Had no small, they had no small dissension and debate, which means it was a massive argument. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders with this question. Uh, so they go to Jerusalem. There's going to be a big, a big debate on this very important early church issue. And then Peter speaks, essentially takes the side of Paul and Barnabas and rebukes the other guys. And then you get to 15.13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. And then James gives a pretty extensive uh, speech and recommendation. And actually... A couple scholars noted that the Greek, if you, if you compare this speech of James in Acts 15 to the letter of James, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of phrases and words that are used in both places. So that's, good. that's kind of some confirmation of this is, this is that James. So he's a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's, a, he's an apostle. He's, a, he's a, um, a writer of a New Testament book, and he's also a leader in the early church. Uh, that, the church in Jerusalem. And so when Paul Paul's describing his conversion in Galatians 1, you know, I, I, I got saved, God was pleased to open my eyes, and then I went here, and then I went there, and I went there. But when he's describing all the places he went in his early, his early years, um, he talks about going to Jerusalem. Uh, to, he says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Galatians 1.19. So think so. Still on this on this theme of um, these brothers of the Lord who became uh, New Testament authors. If you look at James one one and Jude one one, the way that the epistles open. Um, so James identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's noteworthy about that, considering what we know of James. So I'm back on my outline now, page 55. So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's noteworthy about that way of greeting? Reverence. 
God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what you meant? I mean, uh, both, both beginnings, though. Oh, James and Jude? Yeah. yeah, they are very similar. That is true. He recognizes Jesus Christ as, as God. Yeah, as equivalent to God. That is true. But one thing about that is he is the brother of Christ. He could have called attention to that fact, and he didn't. So he, when he thinks of the, in other words, when he thinks of Jesus, he doesn't think of, you know, my big brother who was always a pain to me because he was perfect and never sinned. Uh, he, he thinks of him as the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am his servant. I am his willing, happy, blessed servant. Um, that's quite a commendation, you know, if you're, if your little brother can look at you that way, that is, that's, um, it's like doubly humble on his part, right? Um, so that's James, and then we get to Jude. It's kind of a both-and situation. A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, which is a very interesting, subtle greeting. And what's, what's interesting about that? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, it's almost like a riddle. Um, he's revealing things there by hiding something. Um, yeah, so he's a servant of Jesus Christ as well. So when he thinks of Jesus, he, he thinks of being his servant. He's my Lord. And also identifies his brother James, who is the brother of Jesus. Therefore, I am the brother of Jesus. Um, yeah, so that's James and Jude. We think about the dating of James. Uh, you, you tend to notice things like... Uh, What's not said? It doesn't seem like uh, all that, all the rich thinking on salvation by grace through faith that Paul did um, had yet had found its way into James's epistle. And so you, the assumption is that James wrote before Paul would have written a bunch of epistles. Probably wrote this before the Jerusalem Council when they had a big powwow about salvation by grace through faith. So that that means this is a very early writing. And then the other interesting thing about uh, James is how how quote-unquote Jewish it is. Um, it, sounds, it sounds like a guy who's, who's clearly a Christian, um, but is a Jewish Christian who's probably writing to other Jewish Christians. And so the assumption there as well is that he, it's a very early epistle. The later you get in the New Testament, uh, later you get in the book of Acts, the more mixed the church is um, and the less Jewish it becomes. So it seems like it's, it's written very early for that reason. Back to... Uh, the opening. So, so he says he's James, a servant of, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. What in the world does that mean? So the 12 tribes would be a reference to what? 12 tribes of Israel. Sorry. Siri is talking to me. I never talked to her, so I don't know what's happening. What was that? The 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, so... Uh, the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but this is a Christian writing to the 12 tribes. So it's not he's not evangelizing. He's not writing to unsaved Jews. Um, but what, what it seems like he's prob- is probably happening here is he's writing, if you remember the book of Acts, so you've got um, uh, the early chapters take place in Jerusalem. Lots of great evangelism happens. But then you get to the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7, and things get a little dicey in Jerusalem. And then in the beginning of chapter 8, you, uh, 
you read about the dispersion. So there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered or dispersed. It's the same Greek uh, behind uh, scattered and then dispersion. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the, the 12, you know, the restored 12 apostles are stay in Jerusalem, except the church is scattered. Um, but you can imagine James, uh, J- James, uh, a, a converted Jew, converted to Christ, who really cares about those Jews that are now dispersed, those Jewish Christians, because among those uh, persecuted Jews would be uh, Jewish Christians. They were the people that he had been responsible for uh, as, a, as a leader in the Jerusalem church. And so it seems like the book of James is, this is James leading and caring for these scattered Jewish Christians um, throughout uh, Israel and other regions. Um, so just like Paul, how, one of the ways he expressed care to the, his churches was he wrote letters to them, right? And so James is doing the same thing, except it's, uh, it's, not, it's not Jews in a single location. It's Jews scattered throughout uh, the Mediterranean region. All that makes sense? So we got James, brother of Jesus, writing to Jewish Christians, probably scattered, you know, uh, scattered throughout that area. And it is, it is true that they're the 12 tribes. By that point, there would have been some confusion on, um, you know, could you trace your genealogy all the way back to a single tribe? Maybe, maybe not. But if you were a Jew, well, you're certainly part of one of the tribes. Um, and so that, that is fitting. One of the reasons there's some debate about that is that the other idea you get in the New Testament is that the church, people like us, uh, gen- converted Gentiles, um, we, are, we are the true Israel. We are part of the, you know, the, the one new man. So Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. And so you can make a case that 12 tribes is actually a, is understood in a spiritual sense. So in a spiritual sense, we are part of the 12 tribes because we're part of, you know, we're, off, we're offspring of Abraham by faith. Um, so you can make a case that, that that refers to Christians, but probably um, that would be Christ, uh, Christian Jews. All right, so the distinctive style of James. There's been some reference to this already. So we noted that, you know, uh, uh, unlike Paul, where you get all these very expected parts of a letter. Um, so you've got a greeting, you know, Paul to so-and-so, grace and peace. He always has that kind of grace and peace language. He's got a thanksgiving almost always. He's got a prayer almost always. Galatians is the one exception. Then you get the body of his letter, and then you get personal greetings at the end. You know, so-and-so says hi. Uh, please say hi to so-and-so. And then you get some kind of conclusion. Grace be with you. So that, that's, that's the basic Pauline letter package. And actually, uh, the letters of First and Second Peter are, have that same kind of style. Uh, personal greetings uh, included. Um, but James, James doesn't, doesn't have that. It's, uh, it's, it's more business-like. So I'm going to I'm going to greet you, and uh, I'm sincere when I say hi, but then I'm going to get right down to business, and we're, gonna, we're just going to get on with it. Um, so this was referenced. Sometimes people compare James to Proverbs, uh, and there is I mean, the emphasis on wisdom kind of gets you there, and also the, the, short, the short discussions. But a better parallel is probably the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. So the, re, uh, the reason that works is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you have that same 
kind of collection of topics. Um, the, the topics will be anywhere from one verse to maybe five or six verses, and then he goes to a different topic. And he just, he just marches on through, uh, you know, probably two or three dozen different topics in the Sermon on the Mount. So that, that's similar to James. But then the other thing that stands out is that James actually quotes or cites very specific things from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so one guy, um, which I found in, in uh, a book this morning, said, There is not one section of the Sermon on the Mount that James does not reflect and there is not one section of James that does not reflect the teachings of Jesus. So huge back and forth between Sermon on the Mount and James. So some examples. Uh, and I'm on page 56 of my outline. So there's this be perfect language. So in James 1.4, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then... Matthew 5.48, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The doers of the law, the famous doers of the law language. Matthew 7 ends with this. Everyone who hears, hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. And it, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. James one twenty two. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then something that's almost a literal quote is on the swearing and let your yes be yes discussion. Again, you have, and this is Jesus, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And James 5.12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And there's actually a, many more crossovers you can make, but those are, those are clear ones, so that serves our purposes. So any questions on that? What do you think about like swearing? Like, is that you should not saying? swear. I mean, like, what kind of before, uh, Christian are you, Caleb? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I assume like, people don't agree with swearing at all. Yeah, there, there is that perspective that you should not swear, like, swear on the Bible. Um, and there is, a, um, there is a confession you can make or profession you can make that... Uh, I, I commit to tell the truth, basically, and I'm, but I'm not going to swear on anything. And some Christians have taken that route. But I think um, you can make a case that they're, they're, um, Jesus doesn't want you to swear on something. Um, like trivial. What's that? Like a J-Fence Yeah, but... Um, the, well, the thing you have to you bump up, bump against. I'll say it this way: this is easier. The thing you bump up against is that there are cases um, 
where New Testament figures do make, make they kind of swear something, you know, um, or profess something in, in really strong language. Um, and maybe they don't use, they don't, they don't swear on the temple or swear on um, uh, a trivial thing. They don't swear on the altar or anything like that. But they do kind of, um, they speak swear type languages. Uh, and obviously we're not, we're, not, we're not saying cussing. Uh, obviously we, we know that, right? So this is when you swear an oath. You know, I, I, you make a vow. I mean, even you can look at like Paul's Nazaritic vow in, in the book of Acts. He made a Nazaritic vow, which is a commitment before God to do something. Um, so anyway, the point of that is that there are cases uh, where you do have oaths made in the New Testament. So it, it doesn't seem like Jesus' words are, are, a, are a total absolute uh, rejection of oaths, but a certain kind of oath, you know, where you're swearing on something that's lesser than God or lesser than the oath itself, actually. But I'll... I'll um, I'll come up with some specific examples of that and shoot them to you. It's a good question, though. Um, all right, so the style of James. All right, so now let's get into some specific passages. All right, if you want a cursory outline here on 57... Maybe there's a better way to do this, but in some ways, if you just list the topics, that's a, I think that's about all you can do because they don't really fit under um, each other very well. So faith and trials, I guess I did wrap up a couple topics into that one, uh, like temptation and sin. Be doers of the word, show no partiality, faith that works, taming the tongue, heavenly wisdom, grace for the humble, if the Lord wills. Rebuke for the rich oppressor, the day of the Lord, do not swear. Prayers of faith and promises of healing and forgiveness, restore the sinner. So, tons of very relevant topics there. All right, but let's look at some key passages. So, if you go to James uh, 1 2. Where do we stop our reading? Jane, are you next? Can you pick? Can you read verse two? We're just, we're just going to do two, three, and four. Uh, no, one verse at a time. Same thing. All right. Really helpful perspective on suffering. And so what, what would be some kinds of trials or suffering you guys might encounter? And these can be serious or small, whichever, whatever you prefer. Difficult school projects. Okay. Yeah, particularly something big enough that you might get a little, you might get anxious or bitter because it's such a big project. It's going to take you forever. Yeah, will be some other kinds of suffering. Sickness. Yeah, sickness is a good one. Yeah, especially if you um, 
really bad allergies that kind of stay with you all year. Um, chronic pain or chronic, yeah, things that come back a lot, that can be very hard. Well, good. I mean, those are, and those things and more, of course, are kinds of suffering you're going to face. Um, so what is, what is James's basic counsel when we face these sufferings? Yeah. It's always good when you when uh, when the Bible tells you to be joyful. There's always a because attached to it. You're never told to be joyful for. You know, just be happy. It's uh, there's there's always that because attached to it. So in this case, suffering and joy are not they're not natural cousins, right? Suffering usually you think bitterness, complaining, unhappiness, lack of joy, right? Depression. Uh, despair, whatever, but we are actually told to, to be joyful. Why? Yeah, because of what it does. There's a there's a purpose or a or a result to it. So what are the what are the basic steps that he outlines? So. You experience suffering. You're told to be joyful, but uh, you're told to be joyful for a reason because something's going to happen as a result of this suffering. And what what's, what are the, what's the basic progression there? All right. So you've got the test, and then uh, is that the next thing? We go right to steadfast. Okay, and then. Perfect. How do you spell perfect? Ironic. Yeah, so you've got the test, and then you're told to persevere in the test, and then that actually has this result of you becoming perfect and complete. Which, you know, if you, if you kind of just make a guess, you are not going to be perfect and complete without being tested. That's kind of built into that, uh, that, that equation there. So the joy is not, it's not just, it's not, you're not just uh, rejoicing about the suffering. That's, that's the sign of a sickness. You have a demented mind if you just rejoice in suffering for no reason at all. Um, but you rejoice in suffering because of what it produces. Um, you can be thankful in the suffering because there's a good result. But that good result, I mean, the test is going to come, you know, whether you you respond well or not. What's not going to necessarily uh, come that you have to work at is the steadfastness. So you working to be steadfast in character, steadfast in faith, steadfast in hope, steadfast in godliness, that's what, that's what results in that perfection. And you actually see that same kind of um, that language used about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5. So he, he was um, sinless, but it was actually his his life of suffering that resulted in him being made perfect. So that's kind of strange to think about. 
but he needed to be tested in order to be at a, you know, in some ways at a human level, at a, at a, comp- at a complete level to be perfect. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one, two, three, one, two through four. So it's a great passage to memorize if you're going through a hard time, or if you're not going through a hard time, it's an even better time to memorize that so that when you do go through a hard time, you can count it all joy, my brothers, when you do face that hardship. So great passage. And then we get a similar kind of, um, kind of progression type thing when you, when you turn to verse 13. Well, I'll start at 12. 12 through 15. So who's our next reader? Genevieve? Great. So just one verse at a time and then come down to the, tape, the front table. All right, so now we have another equation, except this time it's, we'll call it sin. Sin and temptation. Um, So we go back to a similar kind of idea here, steadfast under trial, but now what is the promise in verse 12? Uh, blessed and what else? You will receive the crown of life. Yeah. <coughs> yep. Um, so you're blessed to receive the crown of life, and then. So this is so we this is the test here. So blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because blessed kind of life. But this test also. If we don't respond well, can take us down a very different path. So 13 through 15 gives us another path. So let no one say when he is tempted. So test and tempt, those are, those are going to be similar ideas, similar words. A test is a temptation, is a trial. Those are all kind of similar ideas. Um, although you have to... I mean, the one difference there is God can bring a trial um, that's a hardship, but that's not, that's not God tempting you. So they're different in that sense. Um, all right, so this is, you've got a temptation. So we're going down the bad path. What's the next step after temptation? It's actually kind of tricky. Yeah, desire, I think, is probably the way to say that. So there's a temptation, and then your heart fixes on that temptation, and it becomes a desire. So that thing isn't just there, but I want it. I want it. Um, And then what's the next thing that happens with that desire? Yeah, it gives birth to sin. 
pretty vivid language. So it's like, uh, it's like the desire's in you, but it hasn't become the baby yet. It's still kind of inside of you. It hasn't um, come to term, come to full term. But then there's the sin, and then what's, what's left after that? Death. Yeah, death. So obviously he's not saying that every single sin results in physical death. Um, but there is a, there's a sense that once, that once you give yourself over to sin, um, there's, this, there's always a kind of death that results in that. So every sin brings some kind of death, just not you know, a total physical or spiritual death. Um, but this tells us something really critical about God. God is not in the language that get used gets used a lot in this in these discussions is God is not the author of sin, which just means God doesn't God doesn't cause you to sin. Um, it's it's a tricky concept because all things that happen are caused by God ultimately. Um, so He causes he, he causes things to happen in different ways. Sometimes he causes uh, something in a very direct way that involves him very personally. And then sometimes he causes things to happen by, uh, by sort of letting you do what you want to do, but you shouldn't do. So, you know, when, when it came to Judas betraying Jesus, that was part of God's overall sovereignty, right? He, he wanted that to happen because uh, the, the death of Jesus would result in the redemption of his people. But it's not like... God took over Judas and made Judas do all that he did, right? What he, I mean, it was actually the devil, right, who came into Judas, uh, in a sense, and, and made Judas do what he wanted to do. But God let it happen. God let the devil, God let the devil in that moment do what he wanted them to do because God had a, a larger overarching plan uh, for, for the redemption of, of his people. So God is not the author of sin, very important point. He's, he's sovereign over all things, but he's not the author of sin. But this is helpful. Um, you know, you see the same thing if you think of um, uh, uh, the fall of Eve, you know, when she sinned. Um, so the temptation came to her in the serpent, right? So there was a, it just, you know, that, that was definitely a temptation from outside of her. It wasn't there, and then something outside of her came into her life, and the temptation was there. And so she has a conversation with the devil. The devil talks her into this. It's actually going to be a good thing. It's going to bless you if you eat the fruit. And so now it's a desire. She saw it was good for the eyes. It was good to taste, and it's going to make her wise. So then it became a desire, and then she sinned, and then obviously death. And that was cataclysmic, true death. Uh, Um, so the point for us, practically, this is when you want to battle your sins. When it's at, te- when it's at the temptation and the desire uh, phase. And obviously desire is not a static thing. It grows, right? So you, maybe you start off with a little bit of desire for this thing you shouldn't want. And then that desire grows. And then it becomes, that's, like, that's kind of like that pregnancy metaphor. You know, the baby's growing. And then it gives, then it gives birth to sin. But uh, I think it was Spurgeon who talked about your temptation is like, 
is like killing a snake. You always want to kill a snake when it's small, not when it's big. Um, but that progression um, also means you have to battle your sins at this level, at the heart level. You know, a lot of times what gets all the attention is what you did because you sinned. So you, you just yelled at your mom. I mean, it was, and that was terrible. You should not have yelled at your mom. And so, so you pray, Lord, help me not yell at my mom. And that's, that's, that's a place to start. You shouldn't yell at your mom. That's good. But the problem is, is the heart, the desire that, that caused you to yell at your mom. That's, that's your real problem. The yelling was, in a, it was, was letting the rest of the world know you have a problem. But the real problem is what's in your heart that overflowed into you yelling at your mom. And so that's, that's the desire. So what, what was the desire in me that caused me to yell at my mom? That's what you really need to fight. Make sense? Some yeses? All right. Okay, so another interesting thing in James is what he says about the law. Typically, when you, when, you're ta- when you say the law in the Bible, what are you talking about? Uh, at least very often, yeah. It's the Ten Commandments. What else might it be? Yeah, the entire Mosaic Law, right. And so in James, it's not exactly clear what he means by the law. So here's, here are a few references. So 125, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's probably the moral law of the Old Testament, uh, the commandments of the Old Testament that we are still bound to keep. So that would, that would include the Ten Commandments, but also other commandments as well, like love, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Um, so he's not, he's not saying to look into the perfect law um, and make sure you offer all the specific sacrifices for your specific sins. But he, he, he would be talking about the moral law at this point. Um, but he does call it the perfect law and the law of liberty. What's, what's striking about that law of liberty language? It seems counterintuitive to a lot of people that following all the commands of the law. Yes. But it is true. It is true that Keeping God's law leads to liberty. It does not lead to slavery. Uh, Jesus tells us what leads to slavery in John chapter 8, which is what? Yeah, everyone who sins is the slave of sin, Jesus says. Um, So the Son will set you free. Obedience will set you free. Slavery leads to sin, or sin leads to slavery, sorry. So it is the law of liberty, and it's the perfect law. It's, it's, uh, we only understand that law because of Jesus and through Jesus, but it is, it is in itself a perfect law. So then in, in 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So, that's, so now, the, now the law of the moral law of the Old Testament is now the royal law. Um, so royalty speaks to a king, right? So this is the law of the king, in other words. Um, so it's perfect. It leads, it's, 
it's liberating, and it's royal. But we are, to, we are to interpret that law, the royal law, according to that scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, just like Jesus taught, just like Paul taught, you, you understand the Old Testament when you, when you frame it with the two great commandments, you shall love God and you shall love your neighbor, and place all the other commandments we are to obey underneath those. And then, just another reiteration, 2.12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So it is a law of liberty, but it's also a law of, the law of liberty that will ultimately judge you. That will be the standard of judgment. You know, did you keep these laws or not? So that's, that's interesting. So th- that, that leads us to say this is a, you know, this is a Jew, very, very likely writing to Christian Jews, but also this is definitely a Christian. This is, this is a guy who believes in Jesus and interprets the law of the Old Testament through the teaching of Jesus. He's not interpreting it as a Pharisee. All right, so let's go to t- chapter 2 now. One of the famous riddles of the New Testament, 2, 14 to 26. All right, let me get rid of our suffering just with a simple wipe of my hand. Our suffering is gone. Can you feel the difference? No. No? All right. I'll get rid of our temptations and trials just with a simple wave of my hands. So I guess it's fitting that they're not really gone, that I couldn't really just erase it. Oh, right. All right, so who's our next reader? Kirsten, excellent. So 2.14 to 26. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's all right. Judy, you know where we are? You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the mess of Jews and sent them out by another way? But if the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right. 
You got James and you got Paul. Which of them is right? <laughs> Good answer. All right, so if you go to Romans, keep, keep your thumb in uh, James 2, and then go to Romans 3. Three twenty-eight. We'll call it three twenty-eight. All right. So Romans three twenty-eight. Uh, Romans is just a huge, lengthy unpacking of the gospel, and he writes: We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And we could go to Galatians chapter 2, six, verse 16. Still keeping our thumb in James 2. But Galatians 2, 16. Two sixteen. we know that a person is not justified by works. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, so then we go back to James 2. Um, Yeah, you could look at 224 as the most stark contrast. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Um, so you've got Romans 3.28. You've got Galatians 2.16. And we could have gone to others. And you've got James. We'll call it 2.24. All right, so Paul says it's faith faith and not works that what? Ju well, justifies you, saves you. All right. Faith and not works saves. So the way to think of Paul is he's answering this question, how is a person saved? How is a person saved? And we would say you're saved by faith and not by works. James is actually answering a different question. He's, he's, really, he's really after what kind of faith saves you. So what kind of faith? And how would you summarize James's what kind of faith saves you? Faith what? Yeah, faith with works or faith, we could call it faith that works. Faith that works. Good, yeah, faith that's completed 
by works. Um, now we know Paul believes in works because he he uses the phrase good works. Uh, if you go to the book of Titus, we won't go there, but if you go to the book of Titus, that phrase good works pops up a lot, maybe five times, six times. And so he's calling us to a life of good works. Um, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So he's not saying we shouldn't have works or we shouldn't have good works. We should have good works. In fact, your faith isn't faith unless it leads to good works. But when it comes to what saves you, it's not good works that saves you. It's faith that saves you. But if faith saves you, it's really important to know what kind of faith is it. So, um, so James mentions a kind of faith that will not save you in there. And what is that? A faith that uh, a certain kind of person has? Yeah, but uh, it's before that, actually, I think. I said person. It's not really a person, but it's a, it's a thing. What's that? A demon? Yeah, if you have faith like a demon, that won't save you. What is the faith that demons have? God is Yes, God is one. They believe that God exists, right? A demon doesn't deny the existence of God. They're smart enough to know that there is a God. But their faith doesn't lead to, lead to works. It's not completed by works. It's, it's, a, it's a recognition of God's existence, but not a bowing down to him as their Lord. So they reject him as their Lord, even though they know he is the Lord. I mean, kind of... <laughs> It sounds obvious, right? That if I if I'm like a demon, I probably won't be saved. But you know, it's good to clarify: demons won't be saved. Um, so we need, we need something different. We need a different kind of faith. We need a living faith that actually does do good works. And so he uses some examples here from the Old Testament. And what are the? Let's just list the names first before we get to the details. What are the examples from the Old Testament? Abraham. Yep. So often we go back to Abraham. To this kind, this time he's a he's an example of works and not faith. Even though for Paul in Galatians three, Abraham is in Romans four. He's the example of faith. All right. So we got Abraham. Who else we got? Rahab. Rahab. Is that all we have? Abraham and Rahab. Yes? Okay. All right, so Rahab is, or sorry, Abraham is an example from which event in his life? The offering of Isaac. Yeah, he's told after a really long time of waiting for this promised son, Isaac. He's, so he's promised the son at 75 years old, at 100 or 99, no, 100. At 100, he has Isaac, finally. And then when Isaac is, I think, 12, uh, 13, some young, uh, he's told to actually offer Isaac. Um, and he does it. The book of Hebrews tells us that he had some kind of faith that knew that 
either truly or spiritually or somehow, God is going to raise Isaac. Um, and so, so he went and offered Isaac knowing that God would raise him. And God, God did, as it were, raised him up from the altar. Um, so that offering was a profound picture of works, of obedience, of submission to God, of recognizing God as your Lord. So demons, not, you know, not at all, have, have that kind of faith. But Abraham had that kind of faith that would actually bow down and do what the Lord is asking him to do. Um, And then Rahab, it's curious, of all the people in the Old Testament, he picked Rahab. So who is she? You guys remember? So she's in the book of Joshua. She's a prostitute. Um, the spies go to Rahab, and they, they, uh, they basically say, protect us. She does protect them, but... Then she gives, she gives one of the great sort of mini testimonies about who the Lord is. The Lord, that, you know, Yahweh, she uses the name Yahweh, um, the personal name of God, the Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. We know that God is with you and uh, will deliver you. And, but then she says, but remember me. And so she um, is recognized for her faith and her obedience and her, and her good works. Um, so it's a... I mean, it's powerful uh, that she of all the Old Testament, I mean, he could have picked David, he could have picked Moses, he could have picked a lot of people, but he picked Rahab. And yet she is an example of good works. And then she would go on to be in the line of Jesus um, uh, in, uh, through Boaz, right? She's the mother or grandmother of Boaz, the wife uh, or the husband of Ruth. Um, yeah, so what else do we want to say about Rahab? So you don't want to... Um, so James's point isn't that, Re that Abraham didn't have faith or, and, or that Rahab didn't have faith. The point was that their, their faith was matched with good works, and so we knew it was a true faith. And so... Um, uh, James is going to use justification language, which is a little confusing, but there is a sense in which they are declared righteous because of their good works. Um, so there's a kind of declaration. There's like there's, uh, When Paul talks about justification, he means that moment of salvation when you're declared righteous, sort of initially for the first time. Uh, James is talking about something that happens as you do good works. You're also justified, vindicated. Your faith is proven to be true and real. Um, so you're, you are declared righteous in that sense. So any questions on that? It's a really big issue, so you, you want to make sure you're clear on that. So these are two authors that have, um, you know, Spurgeon has talked about these. You know, they're not, they're not enemies fighting each other, contradicting each other. It's like they're, they're fighting back-to-back -back against two different enemies. So Paul's enemy is people who are going to boast of their works uh, their, their Jewish works uh, of the law, even though they don't have faith in Jesus, and he's going to tell them, your works will not save you. You must have faith. And James is, is, is talking about people who say they believe in God, say they maybe even believe in Jesus, although that, that gets a little more complicated, say they have some kind of faith, and yet 
you can look at their life and you can tell, no, you don't. You don't have true faith. You have, maybe you have the faith of a demon, but you don't have saving faith. Um, so they're just fighting against two different, two different enemies. Um, all right, so last, last piece we'll look at is chapter 4. Turn to 4, 1, and, 1 through 3. No, 1 and 2, sorry. And I'll just read this. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And the the point you want to see there is um, that whenever you have a conflict, two people are at war, and this could be you and a sibling or you and your parents or you and a friend or a nation and another nation. Whenever you have a conflict, there are, you have desires below that. And those desires below that are what's causing that conflict. You're wanting things maybe you shouldn't want, and that's overflowing into this conflict. Um, so at some level, all murder is a, is a wanting of something that's not yours. It's desiring something that's not yours. Uh, you're, you are in a quarrel with somebody, and the reason is you're wanting something. Um, it's, and of course, he's not talking about a, um, a, a righteous indignation where you, your, your cause is noble and worthy and, and holy. You know, you're, you're fighting on behalf of the Lord for this particular thing. Um, that does happen, and sometimes that might lead to a debate or an, or an argument. But this is a, this is a sinful quarrel. This, this is just you wanting something that you shouldn't want. You get offended. Um, so another, another place where James gets very practical for us, if you find yourself often in conflicts or often um, at war with people at some level, just know that this, is, this has a lot to do with me and not a lot to do with them. So the me part is I'm wanting things, I'm craving things, I'm desiring things that are wrong. And I need to, I need to, I need to deal with that. I need to be at peace with, with, with what the Lord has given to me, with what this person is giving me. I need to trust the Lord at some, you know, at a deep level and not just crave and desire and be at war. So uh, once again, the, your, your heart is the problem. Your heart is overflowing into these words and sinful actions. Um, so yes, you, you, need to, you need to deal with the sinful actions. Yes, you shouldn't, like I said, you shouldn't yell at your mom. But your real problem is your heart, that, that war that's going on in your heart. That's what you really need to fix. And that's why, we, that's why if you're gonna think about real change, you're gonna, you're gonna have to pray. You're gonna have to lean on the Lord. You're gonna have to turn to the Lord to change your heart. You know, you can, you can't even change your behavior, but if for the sake of argument you say, well, you can change your behavior a little bit, perhaps, but you can't change your heart. That's, that heart change is what God has to do. Sometimes it's a sign you're not a Christian. That's why you have such problems with people. You're not a Christian. You need a new heart. And then sometimes you are a Christian, and I just need to grow as a Christian so the Lord continue to change my heart.
So lots of wonderful stuff in James. So Father, we pray that you would help us to live according to what you've given to us in this rich and and deep uh, book of James. And we pray all this in, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thanks, you guys.